We are now recording, so the candles are all lit. We're ready to go. Welcome to the Eternia Review. My name is Ben. And I'm Truman. This week is another special episode. We're going into the history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Not like in-universe history, like the IRL history. Yeah, in the documentary, The Power of Grayskull. Masters of the Universe. I don't know that I would call it definitive necessarily. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more than what they talked about. Here's the thing about He-Man. It is about toys. It is. That is kind of the beginning and end of it. The documentary frames it like this, you know, you think it would be like a deep, there's some surprise, some sort of like, you didn't really expect it to go this way. It was actually supposed to be like this, but really it's exactly what you'd expect the story of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe be. Which, I guess to provide some background so that you, dear listener, don't have to watch The Power of Grayskull, He-Man came about because Mattel passed on Star Wars. That actually is sort of interesting, I guess. The way it used to be, and probably the still the way it is, is like the toy companies would buy the licenses to movies to make the toys for the movies. They talked about how, like, They'd buy the license and like they'd sell really well for a while and then the movie would come out and then the toys would just stop selling. They mentioned that for Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian. Excuse me. Yeah, I that can't be right. Am I been saying <laughs> it wrong this whole time? Like Conan O'Brien the Barbarian? It's not Conan, is it? Like I don't know who's the official word on how you pronounce Conan the Barbarian. I would say Conan, I guess. I would also say conan okay in uh 1982 i googled it real quick in the 1982 schwarzenegger film the name was pronounced conan rather than the way o'brien says it conan and then conan is just out straight out of there yeah yeah conan's been around a while though i'm sure they said it differently back in the pulp novel days of conan the barbarian right yeah and that's how you can tell like a bona fide nerd Based on their pronunciation, it's like everyone reading these fantasy books or comics or whatever just comes up with whatever pronunciation they have. So you get things like Scimitar instead of Scimitar and Conan the Barbarian. I pronounced it Scimitar for a long time. Or no, it was Scythe instead of Scythe. There's some book I read when I was in like grade school that was really cool. And there's a character named Scythe and I always called him Scythe. I remember what it was. It was awesome. And then playing... Baldur's Gate or D&D, there's the spell Shillelagh, which is like the stick. Uh, it's like a walking stick from, I don't know, Ireland or Scotland or something. And I always pronounce that one like Shillagah. Shillelagh. It's an impossible one. That's the druid spell, right? That makes your stick really hard. Yes. And speaking of Merman's original name, Seaman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was a pretty good part. Okay, guys, we'll get to that in a second. Seaman was the original name of Merman. They got the license to Conan the Barbarian, and they didn't know that it was going to be rated R, and they found out it was going to be rated R, and they're like, well, this is a child's toy, so no. And they kind of glossed over it in the documentary, but it seems like they kind of just shifted from doing Conan into He-Man. 
using a lot of the work they'd already done. Right. A lot of the work, the concept of a large muscled blonde guy. Yeah. And they, uh, tried to like make it how there was this one guy who had a sketch on his wall of some barbarian looking dude who totally wasn't Conan the barbarian. And they did like a workup of it and they called him he man. And then the guy who's like workshopping it, everybody was named something man. He man Skeletor was originally D man as in demon. Oh, it was the other awful one. Tila as woe man. Yeah. She makes me think of uh, Mike Myers. And so I married an ax murderer. Yeah. Some beat, poetry with whoa man (laughs) i did appreciate you know some some creators hold their original creations very dearly and i don't remember this person's name but uh he was kind of the original ideator i guess the person coming up with all these random ideas to figure out what would stick yeah even before they picked he-man it was a choice between that and tank head or bullet head and then they settle on he-man and he picks all of these like man suffix names and then he's like yeah and then we gave it to some actual comic book you know story writers and stuff and they came up with merman and they came up with and it and it's way better they just did such a better job than i did like why did i think of that i couldn't go with c man thank god these guys came along so there were a couple of choice ideas at the beginning of this documentary and one of them is that the draw of he-man because they did these tests with children when they originally produced the moldings for the dolls and they took those to kids to see if they would like them and they said that part of the thing that they that the children liked about this like muscly he-man doll is that the children would hold it up and say i have the power and they postulate that it comes from the like power dominance relationship that a child has with their parents who are always telling them what to do, you know? So the kid like gets this muscly action figure and they're like, now I have the power, mom, you make my lunch, eat the carrots, you know, whatever. You have to do what I say because I have the power. So that, that was their big draw to He-Man. That's like their thesis on why people liked He-Man or why kids liked He-Man, which I guess honestly is true of any sort of escapism right or any sort of wish fulfillment narrative like even superman the idea is like oh if only i had the strength or whatever i would do all these things but specifically they're like that's why it sold really well so all you have to do is say i have the power and you got it yeah which is interesting because so this we're just going to jump all around with this i think uh yeah that's a good idea (laughs) you mentioned superman and I think in the documentary they mention originally He-Man was just He-Man all the time. And it wasn't until they did this mini comic book storyline with Superman. Actually, Superman fights He-Man, which I think I have the title somewhere later in my notes. From Eternia with Death. Uh, that's a good one. That's very comic booky, And in very comic book fashion, I think uh, Superman's like possessed or like somehow taken over by Skeletor so like Superman has like the cover a thought bubble of like I don't want to fight He-Man but Skeletor is forcing me to or something like that yeah <laughs> but yeah, they did the, the so they, they didn't have Adam before the DC comics that they did I guess that's when they would flesh it out and what's interesting to me about that is you know I have the power becomes the iconic transformation line 
before that, He-Man is just running around yelling, I have the power before fighting Skeletor. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So that was like the original canon that was like, oh God, he's in the canon word, of like the little mini comic books that came with the toys, right? They made little baby comic books that were just kind of all over the place. That's where like the original thing of the sword, the way it works is there's actually two halves of it which shows up in the new cartoon, which I didn't know this is a thing, uh, the two halves of the sword, and then together the two halves of the sword can open up Castle Grayskull. So in order to like uh, get into it, the original idea was you had to have both halves of the sword in that Skeletor had one and He-Man had one. Yeah, and originally they were keeping the mystery of Grayskull much more under wraps, I think. The draw was like, what is inside Grayskull? What is it that only the two halves of this sword can unlock. And the answer is the sorceress watching Attorney TV. As as our listeners will know by now, you know, they've already unlocked the mysteries of Attorney as well as Crascal Grayskull. Uh, what do you think about that two swords idea? It's way more interesting than, I mean, they're right. They talk about it like that's a very like powerful thing and little boys like, you know, being the bad guy every once in a while. And it's like true. So like this idea that Castle Grayskull isn't necessarily a good or bad place. It's just like a place of power. More intriguing, I guess, than the sorceress living there and watching TV and telling He-Man what to do. Because it's only a place of good in the cartoon, I guess. And it's the source of He-Man's power. It's very much more black and white. But if the toy is that, you know, uh, the balance of it's different, I guess. All right, you? did you like that? I think it would be way more compelling than i mean uh you know he-man is not supposed to be compelling no no it's not we'll get back to the netflix he-man revelations which does actually seem to have a compelling storyline you know in the coming weeks notably the first episode at the end of it the sword splits in half and he's got two halves of the sword just saying but up until yeah, Kevin Smith got his hands on the He-Man legacy. The The purpose top to bottom is to sell toys, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it still is. Like, it's still sure. to sell toys, but <laughs> let's yeah. not kid ourselves here. It's, no, but It's also to make a buttload of money. Revelations is art. They just, they're trying to sell toys to the, you know, 30-something whales that buy action figures still. So, like, that, that is what Revelation is for. And then I guess they pissed them all off by, like, you know, giving a woman an actual character arc. Yeah. <laughs> you have this idea of Skeletor and He-Man each possessing half of the secret, sorry, half of the key to unlock Castle Grayskull. Through the course of the story, they clash. They try to get the sword from each other. They eventually come to realize that they are closer to one another than they you know first think uh not in that way or you know maybe they're both muscly who knows but you know like he-man realizes that he has uh faults and skeletor realizes that he has some goodness they come together you know through the end of the story arc and unlock gray skull and then i don't know a demon pops out and they have to fight him together or something i Apart from that very end, I think it could make for a much more compelling narrative about the nature of like good and evil and and all that stuff. Yeah, and that's that's a much more like adult storyline, right? Like it would, but if you want to sell it to kids, I don't know. Like today, the shows aren't the same. Like 
they used to be, right? Like, He-Man's much more black and white, the TV show, right? Or the original cartoon was very black and white. Uh, and I think you could probably sell that show that you just described to kids, like, today. But it'd be more, like, young preteens as opposed to, like, grade schoolers, I guess. I, I don't know who at the time in 83 they were marketing to, but I would guess like a little younger than that. I don't know though. Yeah. I think the kids in the like tester shots that they had were like six to eight or something. I mean, I'm 32, so I don't know what age children are at all. It's like babies or, or you're like 25 and everything else in the middle is a mystery, but they looked like they were like six or eight maybe. And I mean, I guess that's what they think they're marketing to which honestly, like when we were kids, the Saturday morning cartoons were like Beast Wars or Digimon, right? And Beast Wars at least had kind of a complex storyline going on with like shades of gray and good and evil. Like there was guys who switched sides for like noble reasons. So I guess nowadays you could definitely get into more of that. Like where when the bad guy says we're not so different, you and I, he's not just trying to take over the world. Like he actually realizes something. Which, coming back to that feeling, was just an incredible line from the live-action He-Man and the Masters of the Universe that they adapted with Dolph Lundgren and the other who plays Skeletor. Frank Langella. Cordy Cox, isn't that? Uh, okay. Which I guess she's one of the people that's on Earth because they go to Earth in that movie, which I didn't know. Yeah, they said that they, you know, for budget reasons had to set the plot in Eternia, like set that scene in the first five minutes so that they can plausibly say that they're making a He-Man movie and then immediately transition to Earth so they don't have to worry about all the weird background scenery and nonsense. But Skeletor in in that movie uh, has this line, apparently, which is talking to He-Man, tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? Which I thought was really good if you think about the prototypical good character as the unwavering hero that sticks to a extremely rigid moral code. In you put that person with any normal human and you're just gonna like they're gonna push people away because people are not so rigidly good. And so mm-hmm. to be perfectly good would also be, you know, to be extremely lonely, just like Skeletor um is lonely for his evil. So they find some commonalities. They make friends. They, you know, open up Castle Grayskull with the two halves of the sword. And and then they uh, defeat the guy from the second episode we watched. The 80s hair metal centaur octopus <laughs> guy. Which is, you know, after uh, maybe a season of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the toy sales are starting to drop off and they need something to reinvigorate interest. Yeah, then you get uh, Skeletor to be a good guy for a week or something. Which, speaking of, so they eventually decide to create He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, originally titled He-Man and the Lords of Power. But it sounded too religious for the guys, which I guess kind of does. Maybe it sounded more like that in the 80s, but this doesn't. Lords of Power does not sound religious to me. It sounds way more like a... 80s hair metal band to me not that masters of the universe doesn't but <laughs> yeah that's fair lords of power does sound more heavy metal than masters of the universe and they get funimation to do 
all the animation and everything. Apparently, every other film studio, cartoon creator, workshop, whatever, like everybody else passed on the concept. And they get Filmation to do it, and they want a daily episode, like after school, every weekday. And that's where, for like a whole season, for 13 weeks. It was, yes. So the first season was like 60-something episodes. And in order to do that, they had to like work every day of the year for a year straight or something to get a whole season out. So the whole Filmation studio just turns into He-Man land. Yeah, the entire studio. So one of the writers that they interviewed, J. Michael Straczynski, he uh, wrote some movies you might know. Really? Yeah, he is uh, mostly known. He wrote a lot of Babylon 5 episodes, the one that sci-fi series from the 90s that was a not good Star Trek. Uh, he also wrote the newest <laughs> Thor, like not the newest Thor, the original Thor movie for Marvel. Like he wrote Thor. I'm actually pretty sure he's written comic books too because his name sounded really familiar to me. Yeah, I was right. I recognize his name because I have a... Uh, like a collection of some of his Thor stories in the comic books. Sweet. Yeah. Are they good? Yeah, actually they're pretty good. Cause this Thor, like the Asgard Thor had to like transport Asgard to earth. So the whole story is based around like this giant mountain asteroid floating, like a mile above some like rural town in Oklahoma. And so like the whole thing is about like how the Asgardians interact with this tiny little town. That seems pretty interesting. It's actually, yeah, there's some pretty good stuff in it. Yeah, Jamie Kozinski is actually pretty good. There's some line in it. I'm only going to do this because I'm on it right now. There's a, one of the townspeople, like, like hangs out with one of the Asgardian women for a while. And, like, he has a crush on her or whatever. And they're, like, talking about it at the bar or the diner. He's lamenting that he can never be in a relationship with this Asgardian who's, like, you know, incredibly powerful. She's immortal. All these other things. And, like, he says something like, uh, my grandpa used to say this thing, but... A fish and a bird can fall in love, but where would they build a house? And then uh, somebody else says, on the edge of a river. It's very practical. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, and there's some other, the, uh, there's another guy I looked up who wrote, like, other cartoons and stuff, but uh, J. Michael Straczynski is fairly famous, or a fairly prolific writer of, like, big things. They do mention that as the... As the season goes on, and especially into the second season of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, that they start getting really good both at animation and also uh, are able to attract a lot more high-profile talent because of the popularity of the show. And they mention that then they transition into She-Ra, and by that time they're actually like producing quality uh, cartoon television instead of, I don't know what you would call the first... 17 episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe that we've watched so far. Yeah, I was going to say, like, at what point is it going to start improving? Like, are we going to get there yet? Is it going to be soon? Do you think it's, like, episode, like, 85? Or is it, like, episode 40? The other thing that they mentioned is that originally they wanted to play Skeletor way straighter as, like, an evil villain. But then they realize that it's way more effective if they play him for laughs, make him a little goofy. And they say that as if they realized it like midway through the show or something, but like... Oh, there are examples like four episodes in. Yeah. Well, they, they referenced the She-Demon of Phantos a couple times, like pretty early on. Like that was, yeah, the, one of the episodes they talked about a couple times is that one. 
Because that's the one where they had Lizard Man in, like the first fully original character for the show. Like they created for the show, Lizard Man, and he was in that episode. And Lizard Man is a good character who's hanging out at the palace that they're at during the She-Demon of Phantos episode. Because they're off in uh, Phantos, I guess. Phantos is the, the moon. It's the episode where they go to the moon and there's a bunch of slave drivers and stuff. Oh, so Lizardman was in the one, the singer one. Yeah, the singer, the Song of Solace. Yeah. And who was the the other lizard person that Skeletor left in the past? Some different reptile man. Yeah. I'm on the IMDb page for the 83 cartoon right now. Uh, it has three nominations for an award uh, with one win. Nominated for a couple of Young Artist Awards, which I don't know what that is. But the one at one... Ah, no, I'm not even decided to say it. Never mind. It's a, some award in Brazil for best cartoon. Congratulations, Filmation. They're kind of doing like a uh, He-Man-centric view on it, but they made it seem like He-Man was the advent of the Saturday morning cartoon. Like it wasn't a thing before He-Man. And then He-Man came along and made the Saturday morning cartoon a thing. And I don't know how much of that was actually, that was Filmation doing that, or He-Man was a part of that. I don't know. I don't know if if they were so bold as to say the like whole concept of Saturday morning cartoon. They did definitely say that He-Man launched the like cartoons as a vehicle for selling toys. And so in that way, He-Man would have been a way bigger cultural phenomena than cartoons would have been in the past. Or like Saturday morning kids shows would have been in the past because they didn't really have the toy element. So it was, you know, you watch cartoons, whatever. He-Man was like, you watch the cartoons, you buy the toys, you get the pajamas, you get, yeah, all the stuff. As like a toy way of life. Another thing I thought was interesting is that the first season, a significant portion of it was directed by uh, women. And like even before She-Ra, like women were very involved in like animation and stuff like that of uh, of of he-man yeah they mentioned that lou how do you say his last name shriner yeah lou shriner was uh very progressive at least for the time because he tried to bring people into tried to bring women into a thing that was mostly like a boys club kind of situation they mentioned in the show too that they fight back against or at least come to disagreement with mattel and the network around Shira and her ability to like be strong and independent and fight people because uh, Mattel did not want a woman to you know be like swinging a sword. It had to be what did they say like oh she does a ballerina graceful flip and almost inadvertently knocks the bad you know the villain on the head or whatever. Lou Scheimer, by the way, voice of Orko, did not know that. I like uh, was aware of his name like Lou Scheimer being the filmation guy. Mm-hmm. but I did not put together that he was Orko. I didn't either, and uh, that's great then that his daughter, who they interview a lot in the movie, mentions that Orko is his favorite character. You're going down like a cartoon director rabbit hole right now. I need to get off IMDb. <laughs> All right, I'm going to share this. It's so bizarre. So Gwen Wetzler is like, she directed 20 episodes of, of He-Man, uh, and I think she directed a significant amount of She-Ra as well. Among her... Uh, like credits is uh, on the animation department of a show series called spicy city. Whoa. Which is 
uh, <clears throat> an anthology of sexy and risque animated stories in a futuristic city with a seamy side. And the the logo of it is just like a, a voluptuous woman with a low cut dress animated like uh, Jessica Rabbit, but in a black dress and black hair. Yeah, there's a whole world of uh, animated shows we could span out into, Ben, if we ever get tired of the He-Man universe. Well, we could probably stay away from Spicy City and just start <laughs> watching She-Ra or something. This, this actually, the uh, the documentary made me want to watch She-Ra a little more. Yeah. Not that I was, like, against or, I don't know, unexcited about it. It was just, like, it just seemed like a more He-Man, basically. But, like, a better... Yeah, when they make it sound like it, it is better, it's like in the documentary. And so now I'm like, okay, if it's better than He-Man, I mean, at least it's not worse than He-Man. <laughs> yeah, they mentioned that She-Ra has, I mean, they say, you know, they've gotten better at animating. They've attracted some better talent in all of their filmation departments. They mentioned that the storylines are a little bit more complex. So maybe this is like an entry into that, like, what Beast Wars Shades of Grey that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. There's a new She-Ra cartoon on Netflix, too. So, I mean... So there's there's original He-Man. There is She-Ra, which uh, followed He-Man pretty much directly. And then kind of a big span of time... 87 was the movie with Dol- uh, Dolph Lundgren. And then they shipped off uh, for a new cartoon. Is that the 90s when the new Adventures of He-Man came out? I thought it was like the early 2000s or something. The new, like the uh, the Japanese animated one, not the like the reboot. Because there's one where they basically in yeah, a new Adventures of He-Man was in 1990. Oh, that's where they go to space. <laughs> yeah, and they're in space, and it's like very, very much, very Japanese. Yeah, because they shipped it off to a Japanese company who just like animated the fuck out of it. And then they rebooted it again in 2000 ish, and it's also got the kind of anime art style because that had become uh, very popular or had continued to become popular in the United States. Yeah, that one was, uh, it wasn't He-Man. I think it was just called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. So, yeah, they mentioned He-Man is winding down. Even She-Ra is winding down. The toys aren't selling. Uh, They've already taken Beast-Man and turned him into Moss-Man which was Beast Man with fur that smelled like a Christmas tree. That was one of their toy things where they did smelling versions of it, and they had, like, a skunk man that was Beast Man, but a skunk. Stinkor. It was a re- it was a, yeah, a recolored merman named Stinkor who's supposed to smell bad. And then they start talking about, okay, well, we've already expanded the toy line as far as it can go, and we need to sell more toys. So we can do army... We can do Wild West, or we can do Space. And that's when uh, the new Adventures of He-Man, that anime show in the early 90s, came out. And then you skip forward like 10 years or something, and Mattel had partnered with another toy company to create these much more realistic kind of adult versions of the toys, And then they have these realistic versions of the toys and they're like, okay, well, how can we sell these things? And then you enter the whatever early 2000s He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. So what toy launch sparked Revelations? Or is this the outlier? This is probably the outlier because it's probably Netflix trying to desperately to find series that they can sell to people so that people stop going over to Disney Plus instead of them. 
I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I feel like the the money driver here is Netflix, not necessarily silly toys, you know, because it's just an IP that they can make a series out of. Netflix does not have like a. I mean, you watch things on Netflix. They've got Netflix originals, but they don't have like a thing that you go buy a bunch of merchandise about. I don't think. Yeah, the the things that you would buy toys for are not native. I guess like there's probably Stranger Things toys, but that's more of like a ironic thirty something thing to do. Yeah, that's true. Well, probably ironic twenty something thing to do. People are into Stranger Things. It's not just ironic thirty year olds, right? Yeah, it's a cross generational hit, Ben. Yeah, everybody ironically, no, everybody sincerely enjoys it. Uh, I mean, there's so there's a new animated He Man coming out on Netflix too. That's actually like a reboot of He Man, right? Wait, that is separate from Revelations? Yeah, it's a separate one. There's a new He-Man coming out. Uh, and that one, I don't know when it's coming out, but it's uh, CGI and it is totally rebooting it. Like it's Prince Adam discovering the power, like someone has to find the sword to give it to him kind of thing. So what you're saying is that someone in Netflix has listened to our first handful of episodes and has already started thinking, we got to get these folks more stuff to talk about. Yeah, Absolutely. they're like we need more and more and more so that when they inevitably get through the catalog of hundreds of episodes (laughs) of these terrible 80s cartoons they have something to talk about so they do mention a couple times in the movies that He-Man was a billion dollar industry that's insane to me Yeah, like He-Man himself was a billion dollar industry so they say that Roger Sweet once estimated that if you taught up all the products, the toys, the clothing, toothbrushes, sleeping bags, lunch boxes, all that stuff, uh, then the whole franchise, yeah, brought in $2 billion before everything collapsed. Wow. So yeah, so Netflix sees that and they see, okay, well, yeah, let's do Revelations. Let's do the new rebooted, again, Adventures of He-Man, apparently. Netflix also managed to poach, this is a non sequitur, but Netflix managed to poach the Pokemon live action TV series out from underneath the WB. Uh, first of all, what? Uh, yeah. Uh, so you remember Detective Pikachu, the live action Pokemon movie? Yep. So it did very well. Sure. Because uh, <laughs> it's Pokemon and it's just always going to do really well. Uh, Legendary are the is the company that owns the film rights to it. And they're the ones that made uh, the movie, and then WB did the uh, distribution for it. And WB, like, screwed over Legendary, because Legendary wanted to... They had, like, a some penciled-in deal to sell the movie to Netflix to put for streaming. And then WB, since they had distribu- distribution rights, like, put the kibosh on it and only put it on, like, HBO Max or whatever. So Legendary was, like, pissed off about it and decided to not do the live-action tv show with hbo or wb anymore and they're doing it with netflix instead hbo is pissed off about it because they have like a whole like handshake deal about it and now it's not going because they screwed over legendary on the film thing Jeez. so is the show gonna follow the same i don't remember what that guy's name was but is it like detective pikachu the tv show i have no idea i only know the sorted back alley deals that were going on to get over to netflix <laughs> i did enjoy that movie it was a good it was a entertaining movie i've never seen it i really want to go watch it but i've never watched it uh what do you think about the adage that heroes never have spaces in their teeth only villains i want to know where they got that from 
uh, I remember that. It's like, what? But then I started to think about it. And can I think of a hero with a gap tooth? Or just with lines in their teeth? I was unclear. Like, does that mean that when you draw a hero, their teeth are literally like a white just just rectangle? Like one big tooth? Bar of uh, <laughs> plaque and white. I guess it's got to be pure white, right? No plaque. Well, like Skeletor's got... Is he missing teeth? I guess he is. He's got like... Well, he's a skeleton, so he's got a skeleton jaw. Yeah. Even Lint's got a full set of teeth. I guess that maybe it is more that bad guys sometimes have gap teeth. Yeah, I literally thought they meant that you don't draw the lines in heroes' teeth, and they are just that like straight white all the way across. I think you might maybe you're right. Like you don't draw the teeth of them. But yeah, that is a whole. I guess it's a whole thing. We have to start watching to see who's got weird teeth in cartoons now. Yeah, if you look at pictures of He-Man from the original Masters of the Universe, it is just one white bar all across. Yeah. Uh, for the original toy line, they used the same mold for every character. That's why they all look the same, is because they all have the same buff uh, body mold. And they uh, just, like, color palette swapped everybody and, like, gave them different equipment. Except... Except for, uh, except for, except for Ram Man. He's just never good enough. <laughs> I forgot about that. I laughed out loud at that point because they literally did, like, everybody's got the same mold. Except for Ram Man. <laughs> They're on the level. They know. Yep. Uh, but yeah, you were saying maybe about the accessories or something? Oh, uh, they ran out of money for the molding for all the vehicles oh. and the <laughs> yeah. one body. And so they didn't have money for the vehicle for like uh, for he-man to ride they were trying to make him a horse or something so they literally found some tiger toy they had and took that and painted it a different color and gave him a saddle and then it was battle cat because they could not afford to give him a horse or something yeah it's incredible this was the anecdote that was going around the internet for a while but the whoever was like making the decisions at the time uh, they sh- they like showed him this tiger from Big Jim, I think, which was a th- a thing apparently. It was like a sort of GI Joe, like just some big dude who was an action figure who did things, but he was not He Man, I guess. Whatever. But the way they described the um, whoever the president or whoever's making the decisions, he just like did not give a fuck. They're like the tiger's too big, just paint it green. But it, well, it's it's like three times the size of a person. Put a saddle on it. I don't give a shit. Make it work is basically what the dude said. They gave him a helmet and a saddle and painted him green. From the start of our watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, those action scenes, those action scenes have always seemed a little bit off to me. And yeah, apparently they are rotoscoped from actual people running around. Isn't that, wasn't that one of the theories you posited when we were talking about that the first time? That, like, someone took a video of somebody just like, all right, now move. So they did, like, a weird squat and run off. Yeah. <laughs> it still looks incredibly unnatural. But, yeah, apparently they just had, like, a book of reusable animations. They had, like, names uh, and numbers. Uh, the one where He-Man shuffles off the screen. No, the one where He-Man uh, shuffles the sword from one hand to the <laughs> other was stock, stock video 17. <laughs> yep. They mentioned the head back laughing one. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, like when they were talking about it, the way they presented it was like, is this like dirty secret 
that nobody knows and that Disney would never admit to. Like, we used it, yeah, but so does everybody else. But it's like, I don't think everybody else used it in quite the same way. I mean, granted, like, there's other 80s cartoons that were terribly produced or that didn't have enough budget to be produced, like, well, or, like, the animation was cheap, right? But, like, they're like, yeah, Disney totally does this, too. So, like, yeah, like, we're not, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty weird. I mean, to be fair, Disney, like, uses the same animation cells in their old movies they would take wholesale like a certain scene of like something happening and like draw over it for a new scene where it's almost identical but, like different characters doing it for example the in robin hood with the fox the sexy fox yeah <laughs> the maid marion fox yeah uh there's a scene where little john is dancing with like the the nun hen like who's like a big chicken and that scene is reused in the Jungle Book when the orangutan is dancing with the bear. Through the Bear Necessities song? Uh, that's in the I Want to Be Like You when the orangutan is singing it and then the bear and the orangutan are dancing together. Yeah, yeah. It's the same exact animation. They just drew over it for either. I don't know which direction it went, but for the Robin Hood movie. Right, right. So it is a thing that Disney did, but the way that he, the documentary made it sound is like, yeah, they did it all the time. As much as we did. I wasn't sure if it was that or if it was like the rotoscoping thing that was the dirty secret of animation. Uh, but either way, He-Man did not do it very well. I mean, I guess it was the rotoscope. It was, but like that's the... It's kind of like the same same deal. Because the rotoscoping is just over... Like you film a human person doing it and then you draw over it, right? Uh, that's not necessarily the example I gave of Disney, but there's a bunch of shortcuts you do in animation. I guess it's the, the moral of the story. And the moral of the story is that He-Man and Filmation used every single one of them. Every single shortcut they could find. The one thing that I did note is that the creation of He-Man and even the style of the documentary, and so I'll say everything in the He-Man universe is just as frenetic as the cartoon itself. They're just like jumping all over the place yeah including this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah we have been sucked into the he-man universe yeah i mean they had like a, a general like track right all right they talk about oh here's the we made the toy okay all right and then we made the first cartoon and then we made she and then we made another cartoon and then we made a movie and then we made another cartoon and then somebody made some toys and stuff it makes me want to Okay, I remember when we were first watching He-Man and the Masters of the Universe as a drinking game in college. We also very briefly tried to watch Thundercats and found that it was exceptionally boring coming from He-Man and the pace of action. Because Thundercats has like a through line. It has a plot and it has a setting and they actually develop some of that stuff. At least, you know, as far as I remember. Uh, and it would be sort of interesting to compare Thundercats to He-Man and the decisions that they make and, and all of that stuff. Because uh, it was not as... I don't know, I guess it wasn't as big as He-Man. I mean, I think if you ask people our age what one they're more familiar with, they probably would tell you Thundercats. And I guess, so He-Man was 83, 84, right? 85. Thundercats came out in 85... 
uh, the original first season, right? So it does come out after He-Man. So it also is designed to sell toys, right? Or is that just a cartoon? I, I don't know if, like, are all cartoons of that era and all eras just meant to sell toys? Or is there some, <laughs> is there some like, broadcast network artist who was just interested in getting their story out there? I do not know. Well, I mean, Saturday morning cartoons are also there to sell advertising to kids too, right? Yeah. The other interesting thing is that when He-Man came out, the a law had just been repealed or like from the Supreme Court or struck down because Ronald Reagan did Ronald Reagan things. A show could not be like a full-length advertisement. Like you couldn't be advertising. Nah, I don't even know exactly what it was. But for some reason, this law being repealed made it so that they could make He-Man and you could make a show that was basically for a toy because otherwise it would be a 30-minute commercial to get kids to buy a toy yeah that was the phrase that they used i guess it was just laws about how you can even advertise to kids and maybe you can't do it at all like commercials cannot be aimed at children i don't know um but yeah they say like effectively this meant that you could not have a 30 minute advertisement for a toy and after this fcc regulation was removed now everyone is going hog wild with these cartoons, which are, yeah, in effect, just 30-minute advertisements for the He-Man toys, which are, the advertisements themselves are also incredible. They show one where it's this, like, soft-spoken dad who is sitting just behind the hugely expensive Castle Grayskull playset with all the, like, trimmings and all the toys, and his kids are just you know, minding their own business, messing around with He-Man. And uh, he, he gives this whole spiel about, like, how the great thing about He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is that it invites children into Eternia for them to spread their imaginational imagination wings. And He has a whole spiel about how it's good for his kids. And I, as a, as a concerned dad, want to make sure my sons are you know, engaging in things, whatever. Like, that's not what he says, but it's just a whole... Like, he's advertising to the parents that this is good for your kids to buy. Yeah. Or good for your kids, so you buy them for your kids. And it's just so unrealistic, because the whole time the kids are just playing there really quietly, letting him monologue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the parents watch that, and they think, oh my god, finally some fucking peace and quiet. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but I guess I'm just going to have to buy the full playset of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I mean, it's a great double whammy because, like they mentioned, the cartoon is the advertisement for the kids, and then they actually have to target the parents to get them to buy the thing. Uh, yeah, you, you are definitely going to have to. What are you going to do? That's just how it's going to be. Okay, so I looked up the Reagan thing, and in the 60s, they instituted a bunch of rules because TV was like the perfect like thing to get advertising to children, basically. And Reagan being Reagan doing Reagan things in the 80s, deregulated all of it, which allowed companies to market just a bunch to kids. And that was part of it. Oh, gotcha. So basically the deregulation of advertising to children in general. So the one good thing that Reagan did was pave the way for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Yeah. Thanks, Reagan. Thanks. So, Truman, what do you think you learned this week? I think if you want to make $2 billion, you start with a toy brainwashed children don't worry too much about the plot and that's it that's about it 
I think mostly you just sell toys to little boys and little girls who like to smash things together and scream. I have the power. <laughs> yeah, what did you learn this week? In today's episode. <laughs> yeah, what was the real moral, I should say? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, no. Yeah, the real moral is look both ways before you cross the street. Oh, there you go. I was going to say the real moral is uh, always remember to spay and neuter your pets. <laughs> they mentioned in the documentary that uh, the educational consultants were the ones who came up with those morals for the show. And the, the writers that they were interviewing expressed the same frustration <laughs> about a whole bunch of disdain for it. Just like that was a staff writer. Like, they, like what was this? Like it had nothing to do with the episode. Yeah, that was great. But yeah, I think that's all I've got to say about the power of gray school. Yeah, it was, it was marginally interesting. I think it just was ex- what I expected. And I thought it was good if you don't know anything about it. And now I know that my suspicions about it were correct, I guess. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's it. Send your thoughts to hello at attorneyareview.com. Remember, children, that you have the power. Your mommy can't tell you what to do anymore. Your daddy can't tell you what to do anymore. We'll see you next time on the Attorney Review. Beautiful.